Hey, everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by two of my absolute faves. I have Natasha Mascarenas here. How are you? Feeling good. Have coffee. It is 8 a.m. West Coast time, so let's get into it. Excellent, excellent. And we have Eeyore Danny Crichton here as well, who's in a fantastic mood today, just bursting with rainbows. Danny, how are you doing? I'm petulant. Yeah, we can tell. It's going to be one of those episodes, everybody. But the good news is, despite Danny's mood, there's a lot to get into that's very, very exciting. We have seed rounds, a dive into seed round numbers and the data that you might see out there about what's going on in the venture capital market. A couple of very large rounds, DoorDash, Salad Robots, SoftBank, J-Curves, Match, and Bumble. So strap in. we got a lot to do. Natasha, Athena is raising money, and I think this is a really cool company, and I want you to tell us all about it. Athena raised money in June with $2 million round for anti-harassment software that it would send to companies, and then companies would basically install it for their employees. You'd get a nudge every month, five-minute training, and it would be kind of this idea of making a more flexible way of learning about how to deal with modern situations that might rise up better than the one-hour lecture. And this is a shift in its focus, because before it was doing kind of one thing and now it's doing a broader array of things. When it raised in June, it was just doing anti-harassment in a Zoom and Slack world. And now, eight months later, it's raised another $2 million, co-led by the same firm, GSV, that led its first round of its seed. And it's going into anything compliance-related, whether that's how to make sure you are not doing insider trading by mistake or or other bits like that. And it's they landed on big customers, which was the true impetus for this round, including Netflix, Zoom, and Zendesk. And so for an early stage startup, those are big names. They have 20,000 active employees completing their monthly training, which the co-founders see as a positive signal that it's at least getting engagement in some way. Danny, are you currently caught up on your corporate training for uh, Verizon Media Group? (laughs) As a managing editor, one of my wonderful tasks at the company is to actually monitor our employees to make sure they follow all of the different trainings that they have to do. Because I am the one who gets the emails for a bunch of folks that says, So-and-so is 60 days late on their annual compliance training. We will delete their Gmail if they do not respond immediately. I did not know that was was a mistake. (laughs) So let let me try my question again. Danny, are Natasha and I caught up on our VMG training materials? I think you're mostly caught up. I mean, it's February. So if you are not caught up, you would have been fired because most of the recordings are due in December. So if you you haven't done them, you would be out. Nailed it. Natasha, (laughs) there's also some growth numbers in our notes here. Something like 250% growth quarter over quarter. What is that metric tracking in the Athena sense? It was tracking basically the amount of 
people who are on the platform, amount of learners that uh. are coming to Athena. Obviously, those big contracts I mentioned earlier help them be able to prove that. And like any startup, they're right now not sharing revenue, profitability, et cetera, et cetera. They're just hoping to use this money to gain new customers and figure out that stuff later. And Athena is spelled E-T-H-E-N-A, not Athena, it's Athena, like Athena. Ethereum. It's like Ethereum. Yeah, I was going to say it's like <laughs> Ethereum plus Athena, but it's not blockchain related. I usually ask founders for the story behind their name, but recently, I guess I have not been in a good enough mood to do that. You are not okay. curious enough about how that came together. <laughs> I, I know. Look, I, I, I think the idea of little mini modules makes sense. I mean, yeah. some of the things I actually remember from compliance training are like mini modules. For instance, you know, TechCrunch is owned by Verizon Media and Verizon Media is owned by Verizon. And so Verizon, because it has infrastructure that works with government a lot. And so in our corruption training, which you had to take, <laughs> oh, yeah. there's this great story of like, you're working, you know, hard at work in the field and you have like a city official with you. Can you offer them a bottle of water on a hot day? And I was yes. like, sure. And then yep. they're like, wrong. No. You've just committed <laughs> bribery and corruption and are a degradation to American society. You may not offer anything of value, not even a penny. You can't offer a free water bottle or a Kit Kat. Or eye contact. And I was like, wow, you know, I could go to prison over this water bottle. Somehow no one else seems to go to prison for billions of dollars in theft. But the reason why I remember that question as well is I felt I felt bamboozled by it. It was like, are you a good person? I'm like, I hope so. And it was like, no, you're a bad person by trying to be good. Um, anyways, sticking to our theme of startups with interesting names given their subject area, we also have Zeta. Is it Zeta or Zeta, Natasha? Let's go with Zeta. So Zeta is a attempt at creating a bank for couples. I'm going to walk us through why that makes sense a little slowly. It was founded by Aditi Shaker. She's seeing these interactions like Venmo, Splitwise, even Robinhood as all these indicators that people want to talk about finance and share finance and have to talk about it and trade money at times. She's looking at that as validation for the fact that finance has already become so collaborative. Why not actually make it collaborative on a banking level? Instead of Venmoing for rent, you can swipe a credit card that you guys both are already on. And so Zeta is this play on a joint bank that with more features and built for the modern day couple and family. And they raised one and a half million. So there's some money now behind this. Danny, you're married. How do you guys keep track of your money? Do you do the slush all combined thing or do you keep it separate? We're all combined. I know there are families. Uh, we have some friends. They're married, but have completely split finances, which legally doesn't make any sense because all property is owned jointly in a marriage, at least in the state of New York. But I can see where this makes sense. It doesn't make sense, I think, for most couples. That was where I was actually quite confused. So I assume this is like pre-marriage, people who like are getting closer, maybe they're cohabitating, but they're not married. Because like at a certain point, if you're married and have a mortgage, you're going to be built into the joint bank system no matter what you want to do. That was my read as well. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. So the way that the founder explained it is they're not trying to turn over people who are in the traditional joint bank system. Danny, to your point, there is a certain drop-off potential for a couple that's already sharing their finances and doesn't need certain forms of communication or tiered ways when you're at that level of a relationship. Zeta's goal is not just to be for the married couple years in, but is also to be for like the very modern definition of what it means to live with someone. So that could literally be a digital nomad hacker house in Santa Monica. It could be the couple that just chooses not to get married and wants to have their finances in a communicative way. It could be a lot of different things. And I think Zeta's trying to kind of itch at it by going a little broad and is obviously launching around Valentine's Day. Aww. So yeah, very adorable. Um, I got There's that fact from like them. There's nothing like a joint debit card to really celebrate <laughs> Valentine's Day. I did run it by my partner and he was not interested. But I do think it would be great to have just like a crazy card to spend money on. This is equity confession. <laughs> 
I want to be bullish about this for a couple of reasons. One, I like the idea of there being more financial tooling that's niche because when we think about neobanks a lot of the time, they're similar to this. It's a layer on top of someone else's bank and they make money off interchange, whatever. Here, they're trying to tune it for someone. And I think that much like in the dating world, the best app for you may not be the biggest one. The best financial service for you might not be the one that's the broadest. And so I'm going to be curious to see how they attract customers, where their demographic really is. Is the market as big as they think? We don't know. But you know, Danny, I want to be optimistic about seed stage startups. By Series A, I'm skeptical. By Series D, go public. But like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're tiny. They raised one and a half million precursors in it, by the way. And also Chime, Square, PayPal, Venmo, Google, Facebook, and Weight Watchers. So it's literally everyone, your mom and Weight Watchers is in this <laughs> round for like five bucks each. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think it's cool. I mean, one of the big questions, obviously, so, you know, here's two seed rounds. They were announced with Athena raised in June, announced this week. So that's like a seven month gap. And this gets at a story that Alex and I and Natasha have been talking about all week, which is the challenge of actually gauging how hot or not hot the seed market is in the Valley today. And it's gotten harder. So Alex, you particularly focus on safes. And then I just complain in general about everything. Why don't we first define safes for a little bit and then talk a little bit about what safes are doing to the seed aggregate data market. Okay. The question here is what's going on and how do we tell? And, you know, Natasha and I both used to work for Crunchbase News. So we used to have a kind of our feet in the data world. Danny being a VC has been on the other side of the data equation because they have all the information and we, the journalist team, have none of it. And now Danny's on this side. So we've all kind of dealt with trying to figure out what's going on. And something that's really changed the game, if you will, are safes or Simple Agreements for Future Equity, which is a thing that YC came up with as a way to let founders raise money quickly without having to price the round. So what happens in a Series A is you find a lead investor, you get a pre-money valuation, you figure out allocation in the round, you raise the money, and then you issue the shares and you add the cash raised to the pre-money valuation, you have a post-money valuation, huzzah, and then you file a Form D usually, and I'll let Denny explain the nuances of that. But those rounds are kind of easy to track. They're reasonably okay to figure out about because there's a regulatory paperwork trail. A safe, though, doesn't price, doesn't actually transact equity. And so you don't have a paper trail to follow. And one thing that's happened, we think, is that because safes have become so popular in the last, I don't know, Danny, three, five years, fair enough. I'm getting a head nod, okay? An increasing portion of the seed market has gone underground. And so when we look at data about the broader venture capital world, we had this discrepancy because we would hear from PitchBook and Crunchbase and you know the NVCA and Silicon Valley Bank. And we go, okay, cool. Here's the lay of the land for seed. It's flattish to down or whatever. And then every investor would tell us, seed market's crazy. Oh my gosh, I haven't slept in 49 years. I know who you're you know. talking about. I, I, I have to actually show up to meetings on time and wear pants. It's terrible for them. And so we're trying to square the circle. And we think that safes are really the deciding factor here because just so much of the stuff that investors are doing doesn't show up where we can see it. And that was my argument, Danny. And then you took this and kind of extended it to the broader world of VC data. I just said the trend data in VC is mostly garbage, particularly at seed. And then look, exactly what Alex was just saying, Form Ds are not filed for most companies. So for instance, DoorDash, which went IPO, huge IPO in December, has never filed a Form D, like ever. Not in its seed growth, you can't find them. It, it, you know, Edgar, the SEC search portal has no record of any Form D, at least for, you know, DoorDash, the word. Maybe they were under like food delivery, wacko company, Inc. or something like that. Dot Tumblr. But if you go to the California state filings, they're there. And so that's one of the challenges, I think, in this world is that more and more people are filing at the state level, not at federal. A lot of different types of financial products, such as rolling fundraises and debt products and SaaS securitization, none of that needs to get disclosed. I'm not a lawyer, but none of this needs to get disclosed <laughs> to the SEC. In fact, most lawyers don't think that you need to do that. And so you have this situation where there's just no data. I would say, on average, 50 to 60% of seed rounds have no record yeah. publicly whatsoever of ever existing. So almost all the aggregate numbers you're seeing are half 
what's actually happening. And this is the problem because one thing Natasha and I discovered back at Crunchbase News was that the later the stage around, the more likely it is to be announced in a timely fashion. And so this farther you go back in the maturity chain, things get later and they're just less clear. One question. Firstly, do you guys think we're entering a world where it's no longer useful to look at this data for directional purposes now? I know, ideally, no. Alex is putting a downward thumb. The challenge is that there is a cultural change, right? So, you know, the market is not stagnant. If we always knew we were getting 40% of the data, you could say, well, as long as it's going up or down, we kind of know what's happening in the market. The problem is, is that the lawyers are changing what gets filed. So we actually might see even less rounds. Maybe it's only 30% a day and it used to be 50%. With all these new financial products, none of those are getting announced. So all the startups that are raising through alternative means, through safes, through debt, through some rolling fundraises, none of that, which existed three or four years ago, is getting disclosed. And a lot of startups are now exclusively relying on those sorts of products. And so the market is dynamic. In my view, when it comes to VC trend data, particularly at seed, it changes as you get to later stage growth rounds. It's hard to hide a billion bucks. It's really easy to hide a million dollars. I think the data is just bunk. I call it garbage. It's basically just bunk. This happened yesterday on Twitter. Someone tweeted out a story saying in a crowded 2020 for funding in Latin America, none of the 4.4 billion went to female only founded startups. And that was inaccurate. Yeah. And that is a danger of bad data. It makes the situation look worse than it already is. I mean, the fact that data couldn't even pick up, that's a problem. So I, even that is being proven as I say it out loud. I'll make one more point before we move on to some big rounds. But one of the big things Alex is yelling, so we might make two points before going <laughs> out. But I will say, this is not something that the government happens to know and we just don't. There's no secret database where all this information is stored. So for instance, the Department of Justice is actually going after Chinese investors who invested in technologically critical industries. And there's no database. So they actually have like a tip line, like you can just call them. And it's like, if you happen to know of a cap table that has investors that you don't know about, like call this number and like, we'll investigate or something like that. Like they're not going through some sort of key data set where they can go back in history. So no one has this data. Who is our least favorite VC? Because we could just call a tip line and tell them that all of their portfolio companies have tons of Chinese money in them. Don't do that if you're listening. One of the things that the Wall Street Journal mentioned is that most of the tips come from startup competitors That's so of funny. other startups who know that their cap table has a certain person. So they call them to try to knock out their competitors, which I think is like, that. that's a fun tactic. Yeah. Grit. Call us. We'll publish it way faster. <laughs> I want to just do one point before we move on to some really interesting big rounds, which is that nothing is ever new because Danny just mentioned how things change over time. And so if you knew a percentage of undercount, you could essentially always do the math correctly, but it changes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about Matt Kaufman, who now works on product over at Roblox. Lovely human. I've known him for a zillion years. Great guy. He used to be at Crunchbase and he put together an amazing Excel spreadsheet because he is an Excel genius. And what it did was it looked at historical undercount percentages over a set period of time that evolved with the calendar and then calculated the correct undercount percentage for each round type, like series A, series B, whatever, and then corrected the most recent data set with the most recent historical data and it updated over time. It was great. Crunchbase doesn't use it anymore, which makes me sad, but it was amazing. I'm going to keep using directional data, especially in the later stages, and I'm going to be very caveat forward, especially now we know this in the earlier stages. But let's put it aside and talk about some big rounds, kicking off with Reddit, actually. Natasha, how long have you been a Redditor? I've never been a Redditor. 
ever. I know. I just like pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my biggest fun, boring fact. But I mean, honestly, before we get into the fact that they've raised new money, Reddit is one of those companies where you forget that they're private, or at least I forget that they're private. They've just been around for so long that I thought they were already public. Didn't they get bought and then kind of spun out again by like Condé Nast and then they raised a bunch more money? Yeah. Go over the operational history. 16-year company founded in 2005. It sold like immediately, like a year later to Condé Nast, which is the owner of New Yorker, Wired, a bunch of other publications. And then I believe it was in 2011, the company was essentially spun out, but still widely owned by Advanced Publications, which is the net owner of Condé Nast. And they still, I believe, have a near majority stake or used to have a majority stake and they might have fizzled out a little bit over time. But they have been independent essentially for a decade. The last major round was Tencent, 300 million Series D, just, what, two years ago. So that was a huge round and the most amount of money the company has raised. But now, Natasha, they just raised a huge amount more money. Yeah, they raised a Series E round, 250 million. You know, I can't say that it was specifically because of the news that they've been in the middle of for the past few weeks, but what timing. And of course, we also know that Reddit had acquired Dub Smash, you know, months ago. And so this funding along with that acquisition means that we will be seeing some innovation from Reddit after a really busy year. I actually couldn't find the new investors. They didn't disclose it. They said new and existing investors, which literally means nothing. It's yeah. actually right. like, we're not disclosing. Yes, but Danny, if you want to give someone the finger and you work in PR, you obfuscate it. And so new you say and existing, existing and new investors. investors. Yeah. That, that Those are literally the two binary groups of people. What, what other category is there? Dead investors. I don't know. Schrodinger's investors? I don't know. Schrodinger's investors. Exactly. So I, I, to point out, in their press statement, they said that they're going to make strategic investments in video, advertising, consumer products, and expanding into international markets, which I was like, nope, nope, don't want. Nah, maybe international markets is great for some folks. What are they trying to do over there? I don't want more advertising. I don't want video. What is Reddit with video? Does that even make any sense? On Reddit now, there's this like most popular broadcast thing, and it's always someone playing like the piano. And so I think they're getting more into live. <laughs> that wasn't even a diss. That was just a statement of fact. Anyways, I think they're getting more into live streaming like everyone is. I just think it's really impressive that Reddit raised a quarter billion dollars, didn't tell us where it came from, and gave us the most generic set of answers about what they're going to do with it. They're like, we raised some money. From whom? Eh. What's it for? Everything. All right. Great. Good job. Moving on. They did say consumer products, which means they're not working on an enterprise Reddit solution. So, I mean, there is something they're not working on. Great. As much as I'm joking, I mean, we're not including this in the show, but apparently there are rumors that Microsoft was trying to buy Pinterest for $51 billion. So there is an argument to be made for some of the largest enterprise companies maybe would want to buy the next Wall Street Bets forum. No one has any response to that. <laughs> I'm just in awe. But let's move on to... A really interesting story, a Mexican grocer called Justo, which is just or fair in Spanish, has raised a $65 million Series A led by none other than General Atlantic. And Danny, for those people who don't know what General Atlantic is, also known as Generic Pacific, what is it? <laughs> Dad joke. It's a growth fund. General Atlantic has been pretty busy over the past year with going into ed tech companies and helping them bring out their international expansion. One of the things they focused on is companies going overseas where they could actually do really well in foreign markets and helping to build out the BD and, and sales teams for those markets. So it makes sense that they're in Mexico doing grocery delivery. It does. And they're probably going to expand to other countries, I presume, in Latin America as well. But this $65 million Series A is, according to TechCrunch reporting, and I think it was PitchBook data at the core of this, either the largest Latin American Series A ever or the largest in the last decade. But certainly, this is a round that stuck out because it was just so massive for where it was raised. And, you know, you can kind of see why, because Justo saw a 16-fold increase in revenue in 2020. So grocery delivery, not just big in the Bay Area, 
but also big in the Mexican market. I'm going to be very curious to see how many different cities this kind of works in in Mexico, because Mexico City, of course, is a famous international megalopolis. But every country has tier one, tier two, and tier three cities, kind of thinking the Chinese model there. But I'm stoked about this. 425 employees, 40% that are female, raise over 100 million. I mean, I'm hype. I think it's going to do quite well. Is there anything that could trip them up, Danny? I mean, I... <laughs> I didn't think so. What a great deal for General Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's all the same uh, questions you have around DoorDash, which we'll get to in a second. I mean, the other thing I'll point out is this is General Atlantic's fifth investment in Mexico since 2014. And the firm has invested a billion dollars in Mexico and four billion across LATAM over the past two decades. So again, very international, lots of operational experiences. And we, we've talked a lot about the burgeoning ecosystem here, right? So Nubank, a bunch of the fintech companies coming in, essentially a lot of legacy incumbent industries in LATAM getting disrupted by by new digital incumbents. And particularly like in fintech, the incumbents are oftentimes state-owned, right? So in certain countries, the banks are state-owned or the only way you can actually pay bills, this is a story with New Bank in Brazil, the only way you can pay bills is to wait in line for several hours for the one state-owned bank in your city. And now you can do it with a mobile phone in three seconds. So there's huge opportunities here. Lots of investment just south of the border. Yeah, and just to add to more of this, it's not just big dollars that we're seeing. I covered a company called Trenta today that raised like 500000 and I also covered a really cool company called Hero, H-E-R-U, which is also in Mexico that does digital services for gig economy workers in Mexico that actually maybe work for Husto. So anyways, there's a lot of stuff going on there. TC is also spending more time looking at the African startup market, also focusing more on Latin America, just trying to get our horizons a little bit broader because there's so much going on. But going back to a story that we've talked about a lot, DoorDash, Danny, has done something. What have they done? Well, apparently DoorDash is getting back into robotics. Natasha, tell us about Chowbotics, because you're the person who knows salad. Yeah. I don't know anything about salad. I love salad. One. Two, I wrote about Chowbotics in 2018 when they raised their first bit of capital. Maybe not first, but a bit of capital, which is really exciting because that was when I first started covering startups. Alex, you and me talked about Chowbotics on a podcast. We did. So that's crazy. And it's happening again because they've been acquired by DoorDash. No details of the acquisition have been disclosed. But as Danny alluded to, it is a salad making robot. And the Chronicle's actually been covering Chowbotics' performance amid the pandemic, too. I mean, we saw Chowbotics go from a nice to have quirk to actually having a little bit more product market fit with the pandemic simply because people don't want people touching their food and <laughs> mixing it with their hands. And so maybe that's part of DoorDash's strategy here. It just seems like a fun exit to talk about. It fits into the cloud kitchens model, in my view. Like we've seen a lot of news about companies like Uber and DoorDash possibly getting into having their own kind of like essentially like generic restaurants. And this to me fits into that. You know, if you're going to sell a bunch of salads, having a centralized creation and distribution point is pretty great. You can solve parking, logistics, handoffs and so forth. And frankly, maybe I'm boring, guys, but like 99% of the time, I really just want a salad. I'm not fancy about where it comes from. I eat a lot of like oatmeal from a box. Like I'm just not Same. a particularly fancy food eater when I'm working. And wow. so if they could bring me more salads faster, cheaper, I think this is great. Apparently, I don't hang out with Epicures over here. One of the things I'm actually curious about, which I don't think anyone ever has really talked about, is like, what extent can you actually do with a salad with Chowbotic? You know, I assume like a Caesar salad, like you're chopping up some lettuce, like that it can do. But like, can it pull out the avocado and carefully scoop out all that avocado goodness? There is an extent, right? It has some capabilities, can't do others. So I'm just curious, like, what kind of salad is in its ken of knowledge to be able to handle versus, you know, not? I think at the same level of, like, a Chipotle, but also they're trying to do grain bowls, maybe stir fries. It's crazy. <laughs> the so options that are That all endless. makes sense to me. I, I eat those things. Same. Remember how eight years ago VCs invested in the Great American Cheese Company or whatever the heck it was yes. called I off of uh, South Park? <laughs> this is a fun story. 
Oh, How no. did VC money get tied up in grilled cheese robots, Danny? Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's one of these categories. We are getting closer. I don't think it's here. Obviously, without the details disclosed, it's probably not great. But I do think we're getting closer to this, like, cloud kitchens, robot kitchens. If you have no opinion on the quality of food and you have no taste, yeah, there's going to be a lot of options going forward. I mean, clearly, many of my colleagues will be <laughs> uh, popular uh, users of this stuff. But I want to talk a little bit about SoftBank because SoftBank's earnings came out, which is always a huge bonanza of data and fun. So SoftBank's Vision Fund has had its first major legitimate return. They invested $680 million into DoorDash, the company we we're just talking about. So some of that money probably went to Chowbotics for a $9 billion return. So 13.2x return. Huge amount of money. Of course, the Vision Fund, which is $98.6 billion, $9 billion is actually not a legitimate, a huge amount of money in the context of the Vision Fund, and the Vision Fund is lost in some other deals. So at this point, the Vision Fund has returned roughly, I think it's like $102 billion valuation on $98.6 billion. So it's gained like 3 4% over the last three to four years. So it's middling. And so the big question here is most early stage VC firms have something that is known as the J curve, where your worst companies fail quickly. And so in the early years of an early stage venture capital firm, three, five, even up to like seven years, you're often in the hole. You invested 100 million and there's only 20 million of actual value still listed in your portfolio. But over time, your best companies start to grow. They get bigger. They go IPO. And you hopefully get to your three, four, five X return by year 10 or 12 or whatever the case may be. One of the big questions that's open-ended for late-stage venture capital, firms that are investing in, in companies right before IPO, is what does the curve look like? You know, presumably companies aren't flopping right out of the gate a year after a $400 million infusion of capital, and the IPO should come fairly quickly. So one of the open questions I had was, okay, DoorDash has gone public. Uber is the other major winner for SoftBank at this time. Is there an inverse J-curve for late-stage venture capital where the best companies IPO quickly because they're growing super rapidly, they're super successful, it's actually the middling, crappy companies that sort of don't go anywhere over the next five, seven, ten years. And so all the value you're about to see in the, the portfolio has already happened. I think this is absolutely brilliant because we've talked about the J-curve on the show here and there because it matters for discussing kind of like early-stage returns. I hadn't thought of turning it over for late-stage and seeing the dynamics change. The thing that I take away from this is that possibly we've seen the best of the Vision Fund. And if that's the case, it doesn't speak well for a lot of investments, Natasha, that could end up pretty stagnant. A part of me also wonders if SPACs are the answer. I know it's Alex's favorite word slash vehicle, but just as this show is getting recorded, Rover, which is a dog-sitting startup that SoftBank has invested in, announced that it was getting SPACed. And we also know that SoftBank is thinking about creating its own SPAC. It's created one SPAC and it has announced two more SPACs. So it's a, a triple scoop of SPACs. Triple header. And so I don't know, Danny, if that would change the curve, but isn't that somewhat of a solution on bringing towards some of its maybe not great companies public in some way versus in no way? The question is, with a $98.6 billion fund, you need to find $250 billion of returns to make this like a meaningful, I mean, it's a 10-year horizon fund. It was conceived as essentially like an early stage fund. Most growth does not have a 10, 12-year horizon. And so you have to believe that there are at least like 20 more DoorDashes somewhere in that fund wow. to start to add up to meaningful numbers. And the key here is SoftBank, 18 of the 92 companies in the fund have already exited, right? So about 20-ish percent, 25% of the companies are done. So there's only 74 unexited companies left, of which 25, one of which was DoorDash, so 24 companies left have actually raised additional venture capital. So 30% of its companies have raised uh, another round post the SoftBank round, which means that two-thirds have not. Right. So that, that's like the opening question. It's like, 
when is the result going to come? Like, where are the good companies? There are companies that are not good now, but somehow are going to transform and turn into 50x companies, hopefully in like two to three years from now. That's where the magic to me doesn't add up. Yeah, maybe there's some COVID delays in there. I don't know. But we need to move on. There's been a couple of things going on that we're going to hit briefly before we go. One is a big acquisition that's pretty exciting. And then we're going to wrap with Bumble's IPO. Danny, you always have an eye on the South Korean market. And so you knew what HyperConnect was, and I, I still don't. So why did Match buy it for $1.7 HyperConnect has two apps, Azar and Hakuna Live, which are essentially live streaming apps. Azar is between two people, and it's essentially, I call it a dating uh, connection friendship app. And then Hakuna Live is much more like broadcast live streaming. Collectively, HyperConnect made $200 million in revenue in 2020, which is up 50% from 2019. 75% of the revenue originates in Asia. And this is the largest acquisition in Match Group history. So Match Group, which owns Tinder, Hinge, and a bunch of a sundry of other random products, mostly in the dating space. What's interesting here, though, is HyperConnect was actually a major technology engineering company. So it pioneered a technology known as WebRTC, which is actually what we're using on Google Meet, Google Hangouts. Zoom presumably uses a lot of this. It allows for peer-to-peer -peer video connections that don't go through a central server. So anytime you're doing a video app, it generally runs through WebRTC because the latency is lower, the quality is higher, and the company doesn't have to pay for its own bandwidth. So it's like a win-win-win-win for everyone. And so what's interesting is Match Group, I don't believe, has a major video or live streaming product. Correct me if I'm wrong. So huge acquisition to get this technology talent that's around live streaming. So what's Match Group looking to do in Tinder or Hinge or maybe in a new app going forward? It feels much more ambitious than what we've seen other dating apps experiment with during the pandemic with live video. We'll talk about Bumble in a bit, but Bumble kind of did like a story-esque feature, hinged at something where you can record videos for 24 hours. Actual live useful video dating, which I don't know if any of us can speak to it, but the actual potential of it and being on the forefront of it is going to be one of those things that when we look back 20 years from now, it's like, we were around when video call dating began. I mean, you're dead on. A lot of uh, services had to add video dating to their kind of portfolio when COVID hit. But actually, Bumble, interestingly enough, I found this out this morning, uh, added video dating back in like 2016 or something like that. So it was relatively early to the idea of being able to video chat with someone. But a lot of other services have had to catch up. And to just thinking about this deal in the context of COVID, I don't think we're going outside for a bit, right? Fair enough. And I think we've all gotten much more accustomed to just talking in this kind of setting. So my read of this is you drop a bunch of money into some apps that have a strong video future, you're kind of future-proofing your existing portfolio. So it makes a lot of sense. But let's wrap with Bumble. Natasha, you were on the beat last night covering the IPO pricing. Two things. One, what is the price? And two, was it high? Bumble priced its IPO at $43 per share, which was ahead of its already raised IPO range of 37 to 39. We talked about it last week, but you know, the debut is big for a number of reasons. Winnie Wolford is a female founder, 31 years old. So that's historical in and of itself. And she's breaking a dating app public, which as our last news bit covered, Match.com had always been the ruler of the dating apps until this moment. Alex, what were your thoughts on its debut and how it's pricing? It did just price above its range, which you're dead on about. It also increased the number of shares that it sold. It sold 50 million shares at that price. I want to be positive and negative. I want to give a big shout out to the CEO because I'm also 31 and I'm not worth several billion dollars. <laughs> In fact, I'm worth several dollars. So watch out. <laughs> but like, I, I don't get this one. I get that it, the company has value for sure, but I, I don't get the pricing. I, I've been watching this and you know, just digging through its numbers. I don't get why it's worth like 13x this kind of Q3 run rate. It seems expensive compared to Match, which is profitable versus Bumble, which isn't. 
And so to me, I think what we're seeing here is a great story for a lot of reasons, but on the financial side, I think it also underscores just how active the public markets are and how much appetite there is for Danny hoped for growth, maybe? Or believe that Bumble's going to expand wildly beyond dating. I mean, they've been trying to yeah. focus on Bumble for work and a bunch of other products. They're going to expand farther into video, into connection, and outside of a dating romance context. Who knows? I think it's a bullish plan. Super exciting. Obviously, good news for BMBL Bumble on the stock exchange. But one more thing, we have an extra crunch live on February 17th with Steve Laughlin at Excel, who is an investor behind Jason uh, Bomig for Ironclad. So the investor and the founder talking about how they fundraise, what pitches worked in their pitch decks, all the kind of logistics of getting a deal done. Check that out on February 17th. But otherwise, Alex, this is equity. Yeah, we're all out of here. We'll see you guys on Monday. Bye. <laughs>